Eyewitness News. Be there as it happens. City News. It's 17.30 GMT. This is Eyewitness News on 97.3 CTFM. I am Umaru Sanda Amadu. Tonight, I'm here with... Hawa Idrisu. And coming up over the next 90 minutes, Governing Council of the University of Education, Winneba, convenes a crucial emergency meeting tomorrow over the High Court's ordered reinstatement of Professor Mauta Avoke and other offices to the campus or to the university. The court, at a sitting today, ordered the University of Education, Winneba, where I once served as vice-chancellor, to restore me to the office to serve the remainder of my interrupted term as vice-chancellor. Consequently, I genuinely expect that in the coming days, I will return to the office and perform all the duties that come with the office of vice-chancellor for the next two years. Also, stakeholders concerned with the ballooning cost of elections in the country as a survey by the Center for Democratic Development, CDD, reveals a whopping $100 million used in running presidential elections in Ghana. A key assumption was, was that uh, some of them may be engaged in illicit activities and so they would fund campaigns so that they would get protection. And later on Eyewitness News, we take you to Parliament where members of the House are worried over the increase in state or speed of coup d'etats in the West Africa sub-region. Stay with 97.3 CTF and for more on this and many other stories on Eyewitness News. And in business... The sluggish growth in loans and advances should be a thing of the past if the Ghana card becomes the only form of identification for financial transactions from July 1st. Now this is according to the Ghana Association of Bankers. That's in some 50 minutes with Ellen Dapa of the City Business Desk. Eyewitness News is live across the country on a number of affiliate stations across the globe. We are on citynewsroom.com. It's an interactive show, so do join us using our WhatsApp and Telegram platform 0549-986-996. 0549-986-996. You can send tweets using the hashtag City Newsroom. Tweet at Umaru Sanda or at City973. And the world will hear what you think. Let's go for details of our stories now. And Professor Mauto Avoke is a name you would remember easily anytime you hear the word UEW or the name of the University of Education, Winneba. He has been at the center of controversy that became a legal case. And tonight we are told there's a huge pronouncement that may be changing lots of things. And even the vice chancellor the, the, will be changing the administration of the University of Education, Winneba. Hansen Ajiman has been studying the latest development and also has a history of what transpired in the university in relation to Professor Mauto Avoke. Hansen, you're welcome to Eyewitness News. First of all, give us a brief summary of what the history around this story is. So it's a number of um, court hearings and um, court cases and disciplinary actions um, concerning a number of high-ranking officers of the University of Education, Winneba, which started as far back as 2017. Now, around the time this situation started, 
there were growing concerns of how the university community was not serving the university was not serving communities around it and the two issues basically were that one the university was not giving jobs that the local people could do to local artisans within those communities and two that the university also was not engaging in um, corporate social responsibilities in these communities and some notable persons like the every two member of parliament um Apenyon Markin was involved in this and he thought at the time that the university should be helping the communities around it and should be playing that particular role so that was a growing concern and then there were issues about the governing council of the university of education Winneba. the at the time the the, the, the argument was that the the, the the legality of that uh, of of the officers the officers at play had elapsed and the governing council had extended the tenure of office of these persons and it was the argument of uh, proponents of this argument that it was um, uh, it was wrong and again there was there were issues about misappropriation of funds and also breach of procurement um, 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 processes. So the cases started when one, an assembly member um, in the person of Supikofi uh, Kwajira uh, in May 2017 now officially went to the Winneba High Court to indicate that the actions of the governing council whose tenor had elapsed were null and void and hence all other uh, subsequent actions should be nullified. And then Apenyo Markin also in his own uh, capacity then petitioned Yoko to also look at issues of breaches of the procurement act and also alleged um, financial misappropriations. Then there was a third issue where the university itself, by its own uh, statutes and powers, constituted a disciplinary action against certain persons, including Professor Avocat, then uh, uh, Vice Chairman, uh, Vice Chancellor. Of the University of Education, Winneba. So these are the the, the major angles of um, of of the impasse that have ensued in the University of Education, Winneba, for over five years. So Professor Mount Avoke and his administration, or some members of his administration, were sent home. Were sent home. And was this by a court? So this was they were sent home by the disciplinary committee of the school. Of the school. Then they went to court. Then they went to court. But they went to court because prior to the decision by the disciplinary committee, the high court had ruled that the, the tenure of office of the governing council that had extended their, um, their time as officers of the university had elapsed and that that action itself were null and void. So they went to the Supreme Court to seek for, um, um, to, to seek for an order question to to question the decision of the high court the supreme court agreed with them and in in line with that agreement lawyers of um professor avocate and two other principal officers who were dismissed by the university then wrote to the university asking the university to prepare for them to return because of the judgment they because secured. of the judgment they secured mm -hmm. so um 
except of the um, of the statement that at the time that was released somewhere in october 2018 professor advocate through his lawyers um, indicated to the investor that prepare their offices and make available to them the necessary tools and resources necessary for them to resume work not later than november 26 2018 pay all the entitlements due to our clients with the university of education winiba illegally and and unreasonably withheld from them from the time of the interdictions due to their illegal dismissals into the date and to date so this was from professor advocate to the university that since the supreme court had quashed the decision of the high court there was a need for them to be reinstated the university answered them in a similar tone and indicated that the high court judgment which the supreme court quashed was never a legal matter brought to the attention of the university nor the council take note that the said judgment was not executable as they were only declaratory and therefore could only have been the basis of the dismissal of your client secondly the decision to dismiss your clients was a decision of the governing council of the university and not at the instance of any court decision directive or consequential orders therefore your warp interpretation of the supreme court judgment delivered on october 31 2018 that your clients be reinstated is not only wrong in law but has no factual basis who was saying this this was the university responding to professor Avocate. so he was saying essentially that um, they, they were wrongly interpreting the judgment of the supreme court and that it did not amount to a reinstatement so they were not reinstated exactly that's professor Avocate and others yes okay further development today the court has decided yes so today the court has decided and this is uh, the high court this is the high court mm -hmm. and this this decision comes on the back of yoko completing his investigations into them earlier we indicated that um honorable alexander penyomarkin petitioned yoko to investigate the matters yoko completed his investigation as far back as 2019 and exonerated all these persons involved and we've had a lot of people who had been calling for the arena statement including honorable alexander penyomarkins himself and also the late former president um jerry john rollins and so lawyers of Avoc uh, of of professor uh, advocate then went to the winiba high court again which the winiba high court today uh, gave his final judgment on the matter and said that he should be reinstated as vice chancellor and uh, any other entitlements due him should be paid him while the other person should also be reinstated but not necessarily to their last officer so this is the exact um, 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 fresh development to this story as uh, which has start which started as far back as 2017. Thank you so much, Hansen Ajiman of the City Newsroom. We'll be back shortly to speak to a number of people who have interest in this story on the phone line. Don't worry, this is Eyewitness News. Eyewitness News. Be there as it happens. This Eyewitness News on 97.3 CTF, and we are bringing you the developing story, the University of Education, Winneba. The drama around who is a vice chancellor is not changing or is not ending since 2017. Professor Mauto Avoke, we are told, has 
a judgment that is in his favor tonight to return as the UEW vice-chancellor. Uh, let's try and understand from the legal perspective what was happening in the court through the lenses of someone who has an interest in this case, as in he uh, he has the interest of Malta Avoke at heart, but he's also a lawyer who has been following the proceedings. Robert Ishmael Griffin is his name. Uh, Mr. Griffin, you're welcome to Eyewitness News. You have been following the court case, I believe, since 2017, and it is climaxing today in what we are hearing. Or is it even a climax? Because for UW and the issue of the vice-chancellorship, we may just see an overturn of what has been decided today again. Thank you so much for having me. And I also want to thank you for the good historical overview that um, your colleague just gave. Just that I would want to um, clarify that the instance um, order from the High Court is not there was not it's not by the instance of Professor Albuquerque, but rather one from Kuku Gati. <clears throat> and they went by way of a prerogative which um specifically prohibition and mandamus. So as was said that um lawyers uh, Professor Albuquerque. You're referring to the Supreme Court matter. then, not the High Court. No, no, the order that was given today, the High Court order that was given today was not by the instance of Professor Albuquerque, but rather Samuel Kuku Gati. No, we haven't. We haven't said that at all. We we haven't said that all he right. is. Yes, yeah. Now, all right, all right, fine, fine. Okay, all right. right so, that's, so, that's so, fine, so, fine. clarify for us then what transpired in court today. And how, I mean, we have tried to give some historicity to the story, but well, if you can yeah, fill yeah. the gap for us, and since you, were you in court right. today? Yes, I was. In so court please today. Uh, be an eyewitness for us on eyewitness news. Very well, very well. So, like I said, the application by Samokuku uh, that was for. Prohibition and mandamus, <clears throat> asking the um, High Court Minister to reinstate Professor Malta Abbott to the vacant position of Vice Chancellor of the University of Education Minister, of which the court granted him. And um, I would also want to um, clarify a situation which I believe is causing some confusion in the minds of others. All the cases that have been mentioned in your um, historical overview, none of them is related to this matter. This is a prerogative matter. Those are matters that involve different parties. In as much as the University of Education is repeated in all those matters, in this, in, in this particular matter, it is the first time that Samuel Kukugate is coming in. So all those matters that are already in court have been decided on have no bearing on this particular matter. And therefore, the order given by the High Court today is in remedies in full force. Okay, now, does today's decision mean Professor Avoke can, you know, carry his staff and go to school tomorrow, or there are still processes that have to be uh, cleared well, up? Well, the, uh, yeah, the, order, the order granted today would have to be served on the Governing Council of the University of Education in Geneva. And when that is done, nothing stops Professor Avoke from holding himself out as a substantive vice-chancellor of the University of Education Winnipeg. If in the, in the mind of anybody, or even if the governing council thinks that this, or if anybody is opposed to the ruling of this um, uh, uh, of the court today, that person can still not stop this order unless the person goes to the Supreme Court uh, for uh, social rights to pass a decision of the High Court. So until then, until then, or until that happens, Professor Martin, okay, when the order is sent on the government council, it's the vice-chancellor of the University of Education. So, so the lawyers would have to formally notify the university. The university cannot necessarily take judicial notice and act on the same. 
Well, they, 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 they can take judicial notice and act on him, but then the registrar would have to write him um, a cover note and attach the um, the order granted by the um, the high court and okay. serve on them. Once that is served on them, um, there's nothing more to be done. In the past, there was a decision. Which decision was um, you know rejected? by the uh, university. What are the chances that this particular decision of the court would be obeyed? Yes, even if the, by, uh, the governing council is opposed to this decision, they will still have to go to court. They cannot, by their own volition, say that they are opposed to it and they are not going to follow. They will be in contempt of court should they do that. And I believe they know quite, they, they know quite well the effects of contempt of court, and I don't believe they, will, they are going to do that. They are, going, they are not going to be an impediment to the order of the court uh, which was granted today. What does Professor Vokeh himself think, though, and uh, other persons, including um, Dr. Avian Saw, or Professor Avian yeah. Saw, are, are they all going to be reinstated, all of them? Well, yes, that is what the order says. Uh, not Professor Avian Saw, but the, um, the ones who are listed in the order. I just uh, I sent a copy of the order to um, the, uh, your newsroom, and I believe you can glance through and see the persons who are specifically mentioned in the order. Those persons would be reinstated. Very well. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much. Indeed, we have that list here. I'm going to share with our listeners uh, shortly. But that's a lawyer who was following for us um, and has an interest in the uh, UEW case, uh, Robert Ishmael Agri-Fin. Uh, he is um, helping us make sense of what happened in court today in the uh, in the in the win in Winneba, uh, where where the High Court made a decision which would reinstate some officials, former officials or current officials, depends on how you're looking at it, of the University of Education, Winneba. Uh, Professor Mautas Avoke is a popular or the most popular of the names. Uh, Hansen, who else is going to be reinstated? Dr. Uh, Teoflos, Senor Frank Ousubuaten, Senator Dake, Mary Jime, Engineer Daniel Tete. So these are the other uh, five officers okay. to be reinstated. Let's go on the phone lines and speak to Ernest Azutiga, his PRO of the University of Education, Winneba. Ernest, you're welcome to Eyewitness News. I believe you would have uh, followed proceedings um, in court, either virtually or in person. Uh, good evening, Thunder uh, and your discerning listeners. Yes, I have been following proceedings. You were in court. Um, what does what do you no, personally? I wasn't in court. Okay. I wasn't in court. Okay, but the UEW has heard of this. What do you make of uh, the decision by the High Court today? Well, uh, the decision has been made. Um, the university is working hard to obtain the written ruling. Uh, management will study together with council, and I believe the appropriate decision will be taken based on the analysis of the situation. But um, the judgment today have, appears to be in aberration of the normal court processes and practices. Why do I say so? Um, the aggrieved persons themselves took the matter to the Cape Coast High Court, which a ruling was given on the 11th of November 2019, and the court dismissed all the relief sought. They weren't satisfied with it, and so they proceeded to the appeals court at Cape Coast. The appeal court also sat on the case, and on the 25th of February 
2021 delivered a ruling which again dismissed all their reliefs. Then they proceeded to the Supreme Court, which case is yet to be determined. Now, the relief sought by uh, Samuel Kwekugate is the same relief that were sought by the aggrieved persons. And so um, I don't know what exactly is happening now. Uh, there are two rulings now. We have the rulings of the appeals court and that of the high court today. <laughs> I don't know which ruling to go by now. But like I said, uh, the management and council will procure the ruling, study it, and come out with the appropriate decision or action. The appeals court ruling you talk about would have come earlier. Did you attempt or re refuse to accept or act on what it said, I mean, ahead of today? The appeals court ruling dismissed all the relief they sought And so, and so, you, there was nothing for you really to do as an university, but tonight no, or no, today's no, there decision... Was for, there was nothing for the university to do. The status quo remained, but today you yes. would have to destabilize the status quo. If, well, if you should accept it, as if you should accept it, or if you should act on it. Yes, the ruling has just come. The university will try to get the ruling, steady it, and come out with appropriate decision or action. Are you having any meeting of a sort to deal with this matter? Um, at the moment, no, but uh, it's, it's, it's early days yet, so uh, there will be meetings in the coming days and then the appropriate action will be taken. Okay, do you currently have a working structure at the university? So do you have a vice-chancellor or that vice-chancellor is in acting capacity? We have a vice-chancellor in acting capacity. Pending the decision of the court, or it was, or this no, no, court no, no, decision no, no, has no. nothing, no, no, no bearing on, on, on that decision. It has no bearing on the on the on the court. It has no bearing on the court in respect of this matter. But um, when the just gone uh, VC, uh, I mean, his term of office came to an end before, even before his term of office came to an end. The process is that you initiate a state committee to go in search of a new VC, which process was uh, followed, and then a new uh, VC by the search committee. They had their search and all that, but uh, what was left undone was that their report to council was arrested by a, a court injunction, which case is also pending somewhere in the court to be determined. Very well. Thank you so much uh, for speaking to us. You're welcome. That's the PRO of the University of Education, uh, Winnie Bass, speaking to us. Uh, Ernest Azutiga is his name. This is Eyewitness News on 97.3 City of M. Hansen, is there any more to share with us before you go? Uh, we are told that Professor Avoke has responded. Tell us more. Yeah, so, uh, Professor Avoke, um, in summary, in a three-page um, letter, basically, is welcoming uh, this uh, judgment by the high court of Winneba and he says that he's going to return to office and perform all the duties that come with the office of vice chancellor
for the next two years. When was this letter, or when was this statement, uh, when was it dated? And can you just lift specific paragraphs? So it was dated um, 2nd February 2022, and um, portions here read, in summary, the court at a sitting today ordered the University of Education, Winneba, where I once served as vice-chancellor, to restore me to the office to serve the remainder of my interrupted term as vice-chancellor. Consequently, I genuinely expect that in the coming days, I will return to the office and perform all the duties that come with the office of vice-chancellor for the next two years. And it goes for, uh, further to say that, I draw firm and complete inspiration from Nelson Mandela, an African, an African icon, and um, in to indicate that um, he's going to work towards um, uh, reconciliation and work better with all other officers within the university community to ensure that the purpose of the EEW is um, realized as a, um, a, a, an institution of higher learning with an unyielding knack for global excellence, groundbreaking research pedigree, and reach. Did he say when he's going to go to the class or to, to the school? Sorry. He's not said so. Um, he says in the coming days he expects to return to office. Yeah, well, thank you so much, uh, Hans Najiman of the City Newsroom, trying to help us make sense of what is happening on, well, at the University of Education, Winnipeg. Reactions are coming through on WhatsApp. How I share some with us and then bring us a few more stories. Prince Henry in Kofoidia says, I wish Professor Avoke the best and I pray we will not witness any Banana Republic action from the government to overturn this ruling. Babamo in Tamale writes, I personally have faith in our judicial systems. With all its attendant challenges, there is hope for us in the country. And Babamo from Tamale Central writes, The reinstatement of Professor Maoto Avoke and others is a step in the right direction. Anyway, he's wishing you a happy birthday. So happy birthday to you, Umaru Sanda from Babamo in Tamale. A.U. Farouk um, from, right from Tamale North. Indeed, Professor Avoke has been vindicated. Sometimes politics does play at all times. So there's been better wishes for you. Happy birthday to you, Sanda. Thank you, Hawa. I'll be waiting for the cake which you have failed to deliver after oh. eyewitness news. <laughs> uh, let's proceed and, 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 and develop this story further for you. Uh, Dr. Frimpong Keche Duku is an interested party in this uh, issue that we've been discussing for you tonight, the uh, UEW um, legal tasso. Um, Doc, you're welcome to Eyewitness News. You were fired and rehired. So this story is very familiar to you, isn't it, at the same university? Good evening to you and to the listeners. That is very interesting. I was fired for pursuing justice for the afflicted and the evicted individuals that today the court has resonated. Are you a beneficiary of the decision today? You have already been reinstated in 2019 or so. Yes, sir. I was reinstated a month after my dismissal. So, the student went on a looter. So you were removed alongside Professor Avoke? No, I was removed after Professor Avoke and company were dismissed. As the then uh, Utah president, I thought injustice were meted against these individuals. So I supported them in going to court to seek for justice. And in doing so, the then VC thought of uh, uh, more or less uh, abandoned my office and went ahead to dismiss me. All right. What do you make of the decision by the High Court today? And we are told there was an earlier decision by the Court of Appeal. 
you see, this today's case is different from what the gentleman described earlier. Today's case was about the dismissal. The first one that was ruled in Kiku's at the appeal court that we are even fighting at the Supreme Court was on the interdictions. So the two are different. In today's judgment, there was even an earlier judgment that was against the university today. There was an interrogatory injunction on the council not to listen or hear or read or do anything to the search committee that was supposed to have brought a new vice chancellor until the determination of the case, which was determined today. And the court granted the suit to the applicant to the point that the, the UW council cannot find a new vice chancellor until they have been asked to. Now, in going to the substantive case today, it was one Kweku Gati in Winneba that thought that why were these gentlemen and ladies dismissed from UW? Because there was alleged allegation that there was procurement uh, improprieties and uh, whatever against them, which case was investigated by Yoko. And Yoko did not find any fault with them. Again, the same university council set a committee which was headed by Sedenis Ajayi of the Supreme uh, uh, Appeal Court. And they also found no fault with these gentlemen and ladies. And they even said the dismissal of Avocay and company were illegal. And then the appointment of Afuguni was also illegal. And therefore, these gentlemen and ladies were supposed to have been reinstated. The council then did not see any wisdom in that report and threw it again. So today, the court looking at the first presented to it had no other option than to grant the wish and the request of the uh, uh, okay, so I was asking the lawyer what it means whether Prof. Avocet will be going to to the to the school and is going to go back, and whether there will be any hindrance. He himself has already written and said, "Well, he's going to prepare to go back and finish his unfinished term." That's something you would also advise him to do, correct? Yes, sir. And you know, these uh, directives were uh, 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 put to the council, so we expect. And as I tell you. The council has issued uh, a notice to its members to appear at a meeting tomorrow at 3 p.m. And I'm sure they are going to discuss this because that was the main agenda set on the, 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 the letter. And therefore, they are away. And I'm sure they have been saved because their lawyers were in court. And therefore, they are going to discuss and let us know the way forward. The last order of the court was with what right. And therefore, nobody can determine as and when they want to please themselves to reinstate the affected individuals. Do you not think that the university has been bruised or scarred by all these years of legal tussle and there may be a problem forging unity and driving development on the campus or progress? If you know the character of Avoke, I'm not sure anybody will want to doubt him. He's a man of peace, a man of a, a, a principle. He lost everybody. I'm not sure he is going to be even from his own statement, he has even indicated that he's going to try as much as possible to heal the wound that has been incurred between him and other members of the community. I think at the end of the day, it's the welfare and the growth of the university that is utmost. And I know, and I'm sure, that is what he's going to pursue. Very well. Thank you so much. Are you still on campus, though, or, you, or you've left? You've retired? I'm waiting for the 2,840 uh, restoration from the government. Then I'll go to a classroom to teach. What is, what is that? You, as in you are, no, you are, you are solidarizing yes, with, the, with the UTAC? 
No, I, I'm a member. I'm not solidizing with them. I'm a member. Uh, and therefore, whatever I do, them, I'm going to enjoy it. You were a branch chairman, so you are just uh, yes, continuing with your aluta. No, not, not a aluta. I'm a unionist, and I always have to speak for my members. You will not go back to the classroom. You, 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 should, you should try. We are waiting for the Minister of Education and Finance. If they pay us tomorrow, the next day we are in the classroom. You, you are in the court tomorrow, Thursday. Um, will you be going? Yes, uh, my, my executive will represent us. Because of the COVID protocol, all of us cannot be there. But we will be monitoring from afar. Very well. Thank you. Wish you all the best, Doc. Thank you, sir. That's Dr. Keche Frimpong. He's former UTAC president and an interested party in the UEW fracker. This Eyewitness News. We return with more stories. Don't go away. Eyewitness News. Be there as it happens. Let your voice be heard on Eyewitness News on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash city97.3, Twitter at twitter.com forward slash city973, and Instagram at instagram.com forward slash city973 with the hashtag Eyewitness News. You're welcome back. Now, radio and television personality Blessed Gosbrin Smart, known as Captain Smart, has found himself in fresh trouble as the state has leveled charges of extortion against him. This is separate from the suit where the Onya TV presenter is on trial for offensive conduct conducive to the breach of peace. In this new case, Mr. Smart is accused of demanding a sum of 100,000 cities to shelve a new story of fishy dealings at the port. The complainant in the case, Ahmed Kwabna Nkrumah, reported the case after Captain Smart allegedly pestered him for a remainder of the money, though he had paid a sum of $10,000 already. He is said to have been arrested when an amount of 50,000 Ghana cities was being presented to him. He, together with an alleged accomplice, Eric Daniels Dutty, were granted bail to the tune of 50,000 cities each, with two sureties whom are to be family members. They pleaded not guilty to the two count of extortion with the use of threat. Now, a family of four has perished in a fire that gutted their residence close to the Tekrade Technical Institute Master's Flat in the Fiacoma in the western region. The incident occurred yesterday. The head of the National Disaster Management Organization, NADMO, at Efia Kosimentim Municipal Assembly, Henry Kofi, who confirmed the incident, said three of the victims died on the spot while the other person passed on this morning. The bodies of the four, a couple, their daughter, who is a nurse, and a granddaughter have been deposited at the Fianquanta Hospital Morgue. Here is an eyewitness speaking to City News. I returned from the house after picking my children from school. When I got to the house, I heard a woman shouting for help. I saw the man stretch his hand from the house. So I rescued him from the window and we poured water on him as he was burning. For that is all what I, I know about it. He had an eyewitness to a fire incident that claimed the lives of a family of four at Efiokuma in the western region. 
The Ghana Police Service and the National Fire Service in the Eastern Region have begun investigations into the cause of a fire which gathered about 15 houses and four shops at Osiem in the Ibuakwa North Municipality. About 30 occupants have since been displaced in the incident which recorded no casualties. The Public Relations Officer for the Police in the Eastern Region, DSP Ebenezer Tete, tells the news the police are collaborating with personnel from the fire service to unravel the cause of the fire. Fire that gutted a four-store and 15 rooms at Osim. The incident happened on the main Kofodia uh, Osim Highway and the structures were near the palace of the chief of the area. Personnel from Kibi, Benyinem and Kofodia, that's the National Fire Service, were able to arrive timelessly at the scene and uh, they were able to fight the fire and manage to douse the fire within an hour and some minutes shortly after the inferno started. Uh, as we speak, we are unable to estimate the value of uh, things that have uh, been destroyed as a result of the fire. So the fire service have started the investigations and inventory will be taken and when investigations are concluded, we will to establish uh, the estimation, the costs in terms of things that have been destroyed. And DSP Ebenezer Tete speaks for the police in the eastern region. Are still in that region, two persons in their mid-70s are currently in the grips of the police for their alleged involvement in the manufacturing and distribution of weapons to criminals. 76-year-old Richard Kwame Asari and Kojo Tete, 74, both professional blacksmiths, have been manufacturing locally made pistols for criminals in the area at the fee. The police, based on intelligence, clamped down on their activities and have so far retrieved six locally manufactured pistols and eight single-barrel guns. Here is DSP Ebenezer Tete again. Based on intelligence, the regional police command have arrested two persons. These are persons in their mid-70s, a 76-year-old man and a 74-year-old man. The first person is Richard Kwame Asari and then the other person is Kwajo Tete. The information was that they were manufacturing weapons and selling it to suspected criminals. So police had the information and were able to do a, you know, underground work, surveillance and other uh, intelligence work was that were, were done. Subsequently, uh, interest was feigned in procuring some of the pistols, like the locally manufactured pistols. So an amount was agreed upon, and subsequently, police swooping on them, getting them arrested. DSP Ebenezer Tete speaks for the police in the Eastern region. Now, the minority in parliament has expressed disappointment at the inability of the Minister of Education, Dr. Yawaseye Duchum, to appear before the House to answer questions pertaining to his sector. According to the minority, the minister has, for the second time, failed to appear before the House with an excuse of being engaged in an official assignment. Speaking on the floor of Parliament, the minority leader, Haruna Idrisu, questioned the absence of the minister. Gabriel brought me a letter dated 1st February 2022, 
parliamentary questions and a request from the Minister for Education for the rescheduling of the question to 9 February 2022. To assure the members affected that their questions will be rescheduled by the business committee for 9 February. Then too, Mr. Speaker, if you read the minister's letter, the last paragraph, it reads, Honorable Minister will be engaged in an official assignment. Why? Coming to Parliament and responding to Parliament is an equally important official assignment. Where is he? And then you bring us a letter only in the morning when you are supposed to be here to answer questions. Where is the Minister for Education? You don't write to us in the morning. You bring a letter in the morning when you are unavoidably absent to ask for But Mr. Speaker, I won't drag this matter. You had Minority Leader in Parliament, Haruna Idrisu. Minhold, the Majority Chief Whip, Frank Anot Dumpere, assured that the minister would appear before the House on February 9, 2022, to answer questions filed by the MPs. This eyewitness news on 97.3 CTFM live on Beach FM in the Western Region via 105.5 in Takradi in Bono Region on Storm 101.9 FM in Sunyani in the Ashanti Region on Focus 94.3 FM in Kumasi on Revival 99.3 FM in Tajevu in the Volta Region on Radio Bimbila 91.9 FM in the Northern Region in the Upper East Region Quality 88.7 FM in Garu and in the Upper West Region Tungsun 97 FM in Wa. Let's move on to some other stories. And a study from the Center for Democratic Development Ghana, CDD, has revealed that it cost an amount of $100 million to fund a presidential campaign in Ghana. That is a huge figure. Kojo Asante is Director of Advocacy and Policy Engagement with the CDD Ghana. Sir, you're welcome to Eyewitness News. That, that's a very huge figure you've uncovered there. Yes, but I think uh, it's been rumored like that for many, many years. That, uh, well, at least in more recent years, that is, is got into that level of uh, expenditure. And, and, and uh, let me just be sure. So, is this what the political party spends, or what the candidate spends, or what the state spends on the no, on the so campaign? It, it has to be the candidate. Well, let's say candidate plus political party. But you know, at the event, uh, you know, the parties made it clear. At least the, the general secretaries of the parties made it clear that, um, in practice, a lot of the money doesn't come through the party office during campaigns. It's actually from the candidate or goes directly to the candidate. So often it's really the candidate that controls uh, the resources for a presidential campaign. So usually we have a presidential office campaigners uh, or presidential candidates having their campaign office where they yeah. would have their own funding coming to them, and then the yeah. party will have its own. But they've agreed this figure is 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 um is a possibility. Yes, I mean, so the I would say that they refuse to admit or deny, in a sense. But it's very clear that um, basically there's a there's a certain consensus that you have to be looking at around that amount of money, otherwise, really, for a presidential uh, candidacy you are not going to be successful because and the reason why it really does go to the to the candidate is that at the end those who are investing very heavily in these campaigns expect a return and they want you know their receipt uh, directly from the candidate so that come to the time when they have to uh, get their their return 
uh, nobody is going to say that uh, I don't remember you giving me this money. Interesting, but this would be the two major political parties, wouldn't it? Because I'm not sure. Oh, yes. I'm not sure the other parties spend that much. So oh, yes, I mean, and this, this, you know, and I have to make the caveat that this, this is an exploratory research. So we did uh, in four in four regions out of the system now, uh, but also one of the motivations was that we also wanted to track uh, uh, the role of illicit money into uh, political party financing. So there were certain regions where we we know that there are uh, illicit uh, activities like Kalamse. Um, oil bankering and so on, you know, timber and all of that, uh, that uh, it's, it's very active. And uh, the, the players in those places tend to really support and finance parties to really protect themselves, you know, uh, from uh, any state action. So a lot of the motivation why you are getting this money driven directly to the, to the candidate is that people want to make sure that they can recoup their investment once they, they, they invest. But looking at your findings, so which you've just highlighted there, you say that um, the study identified nine financiers of political parties and candidates who were allegedly engaged in illicit activities, including uh, serious and organized crime, uh, illegal mining or galamsey, illegal oil distribution or bankering, fraudulent business, procurement infractions and its associated kickbacks from the award of contracts. Are these allegations that were made to you or you have some facts that you may be giving to the police? No, I mean, so this is not... I mean, it's like uh, if you want to understand uh, what happens with, uh, you know, uh, drug abuse or, you know, any kind of uh, illegal activity, you have to get uh, respondents who are willing, you know, in spite of the fact that they are involved in those activities to give you information. So certainly that anonymity is protected because your focus is really looking at a system problem. And it's not, you cannot, you know, after you have done your research to turn those people in. If you have gone and done an investigation, expose those persons, that's different. But it, it kind of throws a real highlight into the dangers uh, that we are in if we don't find a way to get this activity. As we know already for Galamstay, there is a whole state intervention with military and all kinds of their people being prosecuted and so on. But one, the connection that people don't make is that these activities are also used to finance political party and capture the state. And if we don't find ways in which to block, you know, these uh, types of uh, uh, money moving, you know, from, from these activities into parties and so on, then we really risk our democracy. So that's that's the objective as as a research. That will be the objective that we are pursuing, and we've made that exposure. And we are hoping that we can sit down now and begin to draw a roadmap how we move forward to try to curb this this activity, particularly with what is going on in the sub region, terrorism and other kinds of uh, even more dangerous, you know, illicit activity that's happening. You don't want a very loose system like this where you can't really track where the money is coming from. Okay, I've seen. So you said 100 million is what the presidential candidates um, use, and now you've also said the MPs or parliamentary hopefuls spend as much as four million Ghana cities. Tell us more on how you found that too. So basically, the four million uh, you you so you're spending about half of that on nurturing a constituency. So normally, people will nurture a constituency for uh, quite a while, which is basically 
uh, making sure that they are contributing to development projects, uh, you know, building some sort of a food soldier, you know, group that will help you campaign. And you do that for two, three years, sometimes even four years, working on the constituency until you make your declaration. And then you have your primaries. So the cost, you know, to pay delegates and all kinds of people. And then the actual election as a parliamentary candidate and which you might win or lose. So if you put all of that together, you know, what we are seeing is quite a, a jump from the figure that we picked up in 2016 when we did our study uh, in 2018 on the 2016 election and the 2012 election, that at that time it was uh, an equivalent of about uh, 400,000 Ghana cities, which at that time was about $85,000. Now that's jumped up, you know, huge jump. But of course, uh, one of the issues that were, were raised by parties were that uh, if we expand the study and do more regions, we might find variations maybe in in the north in certain rural areas it might be less but whatever the case the cost is rising and that's very clear from 2012 to 2016 it rose by 57 percent now from 2016 to 2020 it's definitely rising you know almost double or triple in some cases and at this rate it just means that more people entering will need more money and that will push them to go to places where the money, you know, might not be legitimate. And therefore, we really have to find a way to keep the rising cost of, of our elections. Thank you so much uh, for speaking to us, sir. You're welcome. That's Kujo Asante of the CDD. This is Eyewitness News on 97.3 CTFM. Let's go to some labor-related issues now, Hawa. The National Labor Commission, NLC, says it will only withdraw its suit against the University Teachers Association of Ghana, UTAG, if they call off their nationwide industrial action. This comes after the National Union of Ghana student NUCs pleaded with the NLC to withdraw a suit against their lecturers praying the court to secure an interlocutory injunction to compel UTAG to return to work. Speaking to certain news, Executive Secretary of the NLC, Ofosu Asamoah, says they will not hesitate to withdraw the case once they are notified that the strike has been called off. So we have told them to negotiate all of the strike and negotiate. It is their failure to call off the strike and negotiate. That has sent us So it is one of us to withdraw the court action. Once they go and negotiate, if they are ready, if they go and call off the strike and negotiate, we don't have any action to them in court. So what you're saying is that if they call off the strike, you withdraw the seats? We don't even need to withdraw. It will die a natural death. We are ready to withdraw once we withdraw the strike and go to So if that is what Mookie is doing, they should just tell them that once if they tell me even on full now, that we have call off the strike and negotiate have begun. That's the end of the story. You had the Executive Secretary of the National Labor Commission of Osu Asamoa. Eyewitness News. Be there as it happens. Get the details. Every significant financial transaction, every market movement, and all the policies that affect your business. City Business News. Be informed. 
Time now for City Business News on Eyewitness News, brought to you by Vodafone and powered by citybusinessnews.com. My name is Ellen Dapper. To our first story, the Ghana Association of Bankers says it is confident banks will be willing to give out more loans after the Ghana card becomes the only card accepted for all financial transactions. Now, the Bank of Ghana has directed all licensed and regulated financial institutions under the central bank to accept only the Ghana card for transactions from July 1st, 2022. Data from the Bank of Ghana shows that growth in gross loans and advances remained subdued for most parts of 2021, reflecting sluggish credit demand and supply conditions and the increased appetite of banks for government securities. Now, in an interview with City Business News, the CEO of the Ghana Association of Bankers, John Iwa, noted that apart from improving the quantum and quantity of loans given out, the Ghana card policy should help reduce the level of non of non-performing loans in the financial ecosystem. Particularly for personal loans, um, uh, that is loans given to individuals, this should help really, really in tracing and tracking of defaulters. Um, the situation that we've had in the past is people take personal loans, they jump from one, one job to the next job, and you are unable to find them on their next job. But with this, and it's integrated also to your uh, with your um, SNIT card, uh, it's, it's linked to your tax ID. It is linked to your passport. So it is linked to anything that we, we, we can use to find you. And, uh, and, and above all, it also pins you to a location. So it is for the purposes of loan recovery, I'm sure it will be of immense help, not just for recovery. And because of that, uh, accessibility to loans should be also be improved. Access to loan, if I should put it that way, should also uh, uh, improve, given that now we have better ways of knowing the persons we are dealing with. We, sh- we, should, we believe that uh, if properly embedded into a um, uh, sanction structure, it should help speed up loan approval and perhaps ultimately may even have an impact on um, um, the lending rate that the bank will charge, depending on um, the type of loan that the customer is taking. That was the CEO of the Ghana Association of Bankers, John Iwa. Now, a former finance minister, Seth Tekbe, is asking the government to heed to calls by stakeholders to return to the International Monetary Fund, that's IMF, to finance the country's deficits instead of taxing Ghanaians through the electronic transfer levy. Mr. Tekbe, who has over time been against the implementation of the e-levy, believes the government cannot rake in the needed amounts through the levy to help close our budget deficit. His remarks comes after calls from different stakeholders for the government to run to the IMF for financial support and policy credibility. Now, although the government insists on not going back to the IMF, the former finance minister believes Ghana's problems of being locked out of the international capital market, among others, will compound in the coming years if the government remains adamant. It is the prerogative of government to say that we want to go. They are acting on all, all our behalf. Yes, it's sovereign. The sovereignty resides in the people. So if you say you are not going to the IMF, give us, uh, give us your program. For me, that's my simple request. Because the markets don't believe that the budget. You read the Fitch report. The Fitch report is saying that the markets don't believe, you know, that the budget is a solution for us having market assets. Right? So that is the question facing the country now. And I'm saying if we don't, it will only compound. 
in three years the commitment that we have to make. And we have, as we speak now, we have to borrow to do refinancing. And so I see even lady, not in terms of those systemic structural challenges that we have, because they're in the middle term. I see it as providing the immediate liquidity that is needed. But the reason some of us also are opposed to lady is that you are taxing service, and it's regressive. Seth Tepe is a former finance minister. Moving on, the Insurance Brokers Association of Ghana is urging its members to digitize their operations to increase insurance penetration in the country. Now, insurance penetration is low in Ghana, a development that is further highlighted in a recent report by the Bank of Ghana. According to the report, the rate of insurance penetration has remained at 1% over the past five years. President of the association, Shaibu Ali, stated that adopting technology can go a long way to bring insurance closer to customers. We are extremely concerned about digitization. Where we have gotten to, we cannot continue to do business as we have done since time immemorial. That is why it is necessary for everyone to digitize their operations. Digitization means you doing business professionally, efficiently, saving on cost of distribution and accessing a wider market. It is in the interest of brokers to digitize our operations. That would enable us to make money. Now, if you look at insurance broking, where we have gotten to, what we are doing in Ghana is child's play. My dream, my vision for this industry, by the time I leave office, is that insurance broking, Ghana should be a broker market. Ghana should be a broker that is dominated by insurance brokers, not by people going direct to, to do business. Now, what is a, a broker-dominated market? A market that has about 70 to 80% of the business controlled by insurance brokers. We, we don't have that yet in Ghana. We have about 55%. And we have to do all these things, digitization and then all these things, to push to get there. You heard the president of the Insurance Brokers Association of Ghana, Shaibu Ali. Now, the African Continental Free Trade Area Secretariat, after Secretariat, has set up two funds totaling $2.2 billion as tools to help African countries make the most of the AFTA agreement. The facilities, which will be both funded by the African Export-Import Bank, Afriexim Bank, are the Automobile Fund, that is to assist countries interested in participating in the automobile value chain and the after adjustment fund to support countries that would in the short term experience revenue losses as a result of reducing or eliminating their tariffs now speaking at a media briefing in accra the secretary general of the after secretariat wamkelemene said the funds would be operational in february after an agreement between the afriexim bank and the secretariat has been signed the other tool that the ministers uh, discussed, which is also important for implementation of this agreement, is the, uh, the uh, AFCFTA Adjustment Fund. And the Adjustment Fund is intended for those countries uh, who, in the short term, will experience uh, revenue losses as a result of reducing or eliminating their tariffs. Um, we are not at a point where, um, in Africa, we use... Uh, tariffs as uh, or duties as a, as a, a tool for industrial development, which I hope is where we will be in a few years' time. For many, many of our countries, uh, tariffs are still a tool for revenue generation. And so over time, we want to change that and use uh, tariffs for industrial development purposes, as the minister was saying. But of course, we are not there yet. And so uh, in the short term, 
we have to find other mechanisms. And this adjustment fund uh, is intended for that purpose. It is an initial amount of $1 billion that has been made available for, uh, for this purpose by African Bank. That was the Secretary General of the AFTA Secretariat, Wam Kelemene. And that will be all for City Business News on Eyewitness News. It was brought to you by Vodafone. Together we can, empowered by your most comprehensive business news website, citybusinessnews.com. My name is Ellen Dapa. Up next is Points Blank. Eyewitness News. Be there as it happens. Blanco and Eyewitness News. My name is Umaru Sandama. Tonight on Premlang, we focus on the ECOWAS subregion. There was a coup in Guinea, there was a coup in Burkina Faso, there was a coup in Mali, there was an attempted coup in Guinea Bissau. This has got members of Ghana's parliament worried. They have been making statements on the subject. Let's listen to some of the contributions today. Within the short space of nine months, West Africa has witnessed successful coups in Mali. Guinea, Burkina Faso, and a fourth apparent failed attempt in Guinea-Bissau only yesterday, the 1st of February 2022, during a cabinet meeting in which Guinea-Bissau President Umaro Sissoko Mbalo said has left many soldiers dead. The coup jinx does not appear to be an entirely West African phenomenon. Niger, Honorable members, there are so many meetings in this chamber. Please, let's listen to the statement. Mr. Speaker, the coup jinx does not appear to be an entirely West African phenomenon. Niger, Sudan, and Zimbabwe have registered themselves on the list of infamy in recent years. Numerous other attempts across multiple African jurisdictions have been recorded. Mr. Speaker, since 1999, Africa hasn't experienced four successful coups in one calendar year, as we saw in 2021, just last year. This is what has led to grave concerns with United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres describing the situation as, quote, an epidemic of coup d'etat, unquote. Mr. Speaker, the tidal wave of coup d'etat set off by the Togolese soldiers in 1963 seemed to roll on unabated, even in 2022. Since the first coup on the African continent, 
there has been an average of 25 coups every decade between the 1960s and 90s. One would have thought that with the advent of the new world order, these democratic setbacks would have become a feature of the past. A world order which places premium on democracy, good governance, rule of law, respect for human rights, strong institutions, and the increasing use of economic and political sanctions on those who falter. Ironically, it is this new Western-backed world order that we find coups very much in fashion, particularly in West Africa. West Africa has been a hotbed of these coups. The sub-region kicked off the coup culture on the African continent and has so far held the dubious record of maintaining the lead in coups. The recent successful coup being the January 23rd, 2022 Burkina Faso military takeover. So far, Mr. Speaker, it seems that apart from Cabo Verde, every single country in West Africa has experienced a coup. Mr. Speaker, there has been a false sense of transition to stable democratic order within the West Africa sub-region. But any neutral observer will admit that the coups, like our collective underdevelopment, have always been part of us, even if the guns appear to have been silenced somewhat in the 1990s when hope was emerging about a refreshing democratization wave. Mr. Speaker, ECOWAS, the sub-regional supranational body, has adopted a high-handed post-facto approach, including individual and collective sanctions, border closures, suspension of membership, and threats of military invasion in dealing with these occurrences. Yet, Mr. Speaker, these measures have not served as adequate deterrent. The forces pushing these military adventurers seem greater than the potential punishment or risks they are likely to contend with. Mr. Speaker, there is widespread global consensus that liberal democracy is facing a crisis of confidence. Freedom House's 2018 Freedom in the World report found democratic declines in 71 countries, while only 35 registered improvements. The Economist Intelligence Unit has reported similar consistent declines in democracy over the last few years. Those scholars agree that democracy is sick across the world. There is general convergence that Africa's situation is most severe. The erosion of Africa's democratic gains has been far-reaching. The African Center for Strategic Studies has observed that since 2015, leaders of 13 African countries have, quote, evaded or overseen the further weakening of term limit restrictions that have been in place, unquote. In addition, many elections on the continent have not been free, fair, and credible. Frequent elections have also not guaranteed genuine respect for democratic tenets. Mr. Speaker, a careful study of the Ibrahim Index of African Governors, published by the Mo Ibrahim Foundation, reveals how poorly many African countries, especially those affected by coups, are faring. In the following indicators, security and rule of law, participation rights and inclusion, foundations for economic opportunity, and human development indices. <clears throat> Mr. Speaker, an appraisal of Africa's performance in fighting corruption, when we come to analyze the Corruption Perception Index, published by Transparency International, is even more depressing. 
what we see is stagnation at best and deterioration at worst. 44 out of the 21 African countries assessed in 2021 by the CPI scored below 50 out of a total score of 100. Only Seychelles, Cabo Verde, and Botswana offer the continent some hope. Mr. Speaker, the African situation is exacerbated by worsening terrorism and violent extremism in the sub-region, following, in particular, the chaotic overthrow of Colonel Muammar al-Gaddafi of Libya in 2011. Since then, sophisticated weapons have found their way into the hands of rebels and terrorists who have presented a formidable challenge to African governments. The Tuareg rebels, Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, and Boko Haram are growing stronger and annexing more territory day by day. It is instructive to note that last month's coup makers in Burkina Faso cited the worsening security situation as a major reason for the coup. They claimed to be responding to the massacre of some 50 Burkina Bay soldiers in the Sowing province by extremists and the government's failure to better equip the army. Mr. Speaker, what is even more intriguing is the popular support and massive jubilation which these schools are greeted with by the African people. A clear paradox of the people's democracy versus popular coups. Mr. Speaker, as a consummate democrat, I am convinced coups are not a panacea to Africa's hydra-headed and intractable socioeconomic challenges. That said, we must all concede that the promised democratic dividend has remained largely elusive on the African continent. The only real solution to the coup epidemic, as the UN Secretary General calls it, cannot be AU and ECOWAS sanctions. African leaders need an urgent, bold, and robust Marshall Plan to address regional insecurity, acute unemployment, lack of opportunities for the youth, marginalization, corruption, nepotism, proliferation of arms, insurgencies, dictatorships, economic mismanagement, foreign exploitation, and clueless leadership. Africa's version of democracy, which has been a sham at best in many jurisdictions, and has rather produced a political and economic elite beholden to nepotism, chronism, corruption, opulence, and high-handedness, often lays with blatant disregard for the rule of law, cannot be kept in place. Mr. Speaker, it is time for the African Union and other sub-regional bodies such as ECOWAS to institute an independent monitoring and evaluation system that assesses the democratic health, stability, and economic well-being of member states for frank peer review as a proactive measure to forestall more coups. This independent assessment must be conducted regularly by credible African CSOs or foundations in a transparent and scientific manner. Their findings must be made public to both enrich the African democratic discourse and also assure citizens that their leaders are paying attention to what really matters to them. This will shed the perception that AU ECOWAS leaders have become a big boys club only interested in regime protection. Mr. Speaker, the history of coups in Africa teaches us that coups are very contagious and tend to have a domino effect. 
the horizon doesn't look good. We cannot continue with mere sanction regimes after the fact, and which clearly have deterred no one. I therefore appeal, Mr. Speaker, particularly to Ghana's President and Chair of ECOWAS, His Excellency Nana Adodankwa Akufuato, to consider this preventive and preemptive approach, which I have humbly suggested. Mr. Speaker, we must also consider other geopolitical factors. It is imagined that the international community lacks a common position on these coups. It was quite unnerving to see Russia and China on 12 January 2022, only last month, block a UN Security Council statement promoted by France and the United States intended to back ECOWAS sanctions on Mali, following Mali's military rulers' refusal to abide by February 27, 2022 deadline to conduct democratic elections. They are rather proposing to stay in power for up to five years. Related to this, Mr. Speaker, are growing tensions between Western allies and Russia over the role of Russia and the Wagner Group in Mali. Further poisoning the atmosphere is a growing popular campaign in French West Africa calling on France to leave and cut all colonial tax. Then there's a recent expulsion of the French ambassador from Mali, which have all created troubling images reminiscent of the Cold War era. Africa's destiny, Mr. Speaker, must be determined by its own people. The attempts by foreign powers to fish in troubled waters on the continent and import their escalating differences is the last thing the continent needs in these trying times. Mr. Speaker, as I conclude, may we in Ghana not be complacent, but learn useful lessons from the turbulence all around us and do all in our democratic power to preserve our well-acclaimed stability by addressing our own fault lines of growing unemployment, political intolerance, depolarization, economic hardships, CPI stagnation, unpopular policies, resentment for the political class, and lingering unresolved crimes. We refuse to draw lessons at our own peril. Mr. Speaker, I wish to thank you most sincerely for the opportunity. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yes. And they often happen because there's large discontent which sips from the grassroots into the quarters of the military. For a military person to advantageous to take advantage of the situation and venture into the seat of government and sack government. The speaker, even though the challenge is about the failure of an economic, uh, the, the economy and the political system, the unfolding events after the coup often abuse the system, destroys the system, and are even worse than the situation they come to meet. And so, essentially, as the speaker, the mover of uh, the um, maker of the statement has identified it's embarrassing for the states. It destroys the goodwill of the states. The spread, uh, 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 the uh, esprit de corps that exists in the system is also completely destroyed.
Mr. Speaker, there is a historical link that brings about coup d'etats in Africa. From independence, we all fought against the colonialists. The challenge was that the colonialists were abusing the system. They were carrying our efforts, our goods and services outside the country. They were destroying everything that was our culture and our nature. And so a struggle, came, a struggle began by a group of people who were colonial, uh, who were fighters against the, uh, the, the colonial system. So we call them the Britain fighters. Mr. Speaker, they fought until they won in many, many countries, and in fact, in all of Africa now. The expectation of the Africans was that the leaders of the liberation would then restore peace, security, and development in the nation. And from independence up to the 1970s, we didn't begin to see all the things we, have, we, have, we fought for. And so coup d'etat started. They started until there was an intervention by the World Bank because the coup makers themselves needed money and they needed to go somewhere for money. So they went to the World Bank, the IMF, for money and then the issue of structural adjustment came into being. One of the fundamental issues about structural adjustment was to say that, look, if you want government, if you want your government to, to, to strive and you want money from us, then you will have to make sure there is democracy in your country. There is free choice, there is liberal economy, and etc., etc. Mr. Speaker, we bought all of them and carried along. And that could be one of the reasons why we are sitting here with the 1992 political dispensation that has given birth to the parliament we have today. Mr. Speaker, so West Africa went through this system, and today, after several countries had recouped from the coup d'etat that happened, we now are beginning to see a new fresh of coups happening. Burkina Faso, as he mentioned, the speaker mentioned, is a typical case of a repeated coup d'etat within this last two, three, uh, last five years. And that political upheaval there is also translating into other effects in the rest of West Africa. We've got Mali, we've got Guinea, and, you know, earlier on, even there was an attempt in, in, uh, in, in La Côte d'Ivoire. The speaker, these things are not things we should look at with glee. We need to look at them with a lot of pain because the sovereignty of Africa is under, is subjected now under question. The ability of leadership to transform their leadership ability into the benefits of the people is questioned. And Nkrumah is challenged. He has talked about the black African capable of managing his own affairs. Now, if you are face, if you come face to face with the, 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 the former colonialists who, told, who now will ask you, you are a black man. You said you wanted to make yourself capable of ruling yourselves and that you are you, you, you now have power. Have you been able to do it, Mr. Speaker? The answer is definitely no, because of what is going on now. So, but the challenge is about leadership, political leadership who want to extend themselves beyond their tenets. And it's happening everywhere. In Uganda, classical case of a leader who has extended his rule 
over and over. Now, 30, 36 years in power, he still wants five more years. Mr. Speaker, so we need to begin to question ourselves how leadership operates in Africa. And then ECOWAS need to begin to reflect on its own charter. The ECOWAS charter that prescribes democracy as a way of governance and got all of us to sign, all the countries to sign, we now have to question it. If we can't question it, we will not get the way through, Mr. Speaker. So it's important that these statements, when they are made, we reflect very deeply on them and we begin to do something concrete about them. ECOWAS must begin to question leaders today who want to perpetuate their rule, who want to abuse the democratic systems we put in place, who want to extend their lives beyond their life expectation, and who want to abuse the rights of people. If you cannot do that, Mr. Speaker, then there is a high possibility that with the consistent economic failures now sweeping through Africa, more coups will come. But we don't hope and pray so. So, Mr. Speaker, I want to say that because coups make it possible for people to lose their rights, you know, create a condition where people lose their rights and free choice, and because coup d'etats bring about uncertainty, we would need to kill the aspirations of members of uh, the military in making coups. And we need to recreate and rethink about Africa and ECOWAS. Mr. Speaker, I thank you very much, and I want to thank the maker of the statement for the statement. Thank you. Honorable members, it appears a lot of members are interested in contributing to this. So if you get the opportunity, be snappy so that you can speak. As I listen carefully to colleagues, I tend to wonder if indeed the template put out by the UN in terms of a measuring road, how successful countries are doing, whether it's time for us to reflect as a, as a world, uh, if indeed these templates do reflect on our governance structure. So GDP is doing well, other economic indices are doing well. Out of the blue, a highway politician comes across, a military intervention activist, and an action is taken. Listening there to contributions by members of parliament on the recent coup d'etats recorded in the West Africa sub region. So that will be it for Eyewitness News tonight. My name is Umaru Sandama. Production by Sixtus Don Ulo, Beverly London, Zoe Abube Duado, and Anna Seidu. Technical support from Daniel Squashing. Eyewitness News returns tomorrow at 17.30 GMT. City News, we speak first.
reach our hotline on 0302-976-732 and get interactive on Facebook City 97.3 FM and Twitter at City 973.